This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Kent Cressa, and uh, I'm going to uh, uh, interview Harold this morning uh, about uh, this book, which you, I understand everybody got a copy yesterday. So I don't, unless you stayed up all night last night reading it, you probably haven't finished it by now. Uh, Star Spangled Security, Applying Lessons Learned Over Six Decades, Safeguarding America. Uh, I'm sure you all know Harold Brown. Um, he's a, a man who has been involved in the security of America for probably 50 or 60 years or maybe longer. Um, having been involved in uh, the evolution of, of our whole nuclear policy and its variations over time, um, being very involved in a couple of important times in, in the Defense Department um, as DDR&E and as Secretary of the Air Force under McNamara, and then in the Carter Administration uh, as our Secretary of Defense. So it's got in the book, as you will read, there's a lot of very interesting stories, uh, things that happened that Harold was very involved with, with people we all know and remember. And uh, it's, uh, it's really a rich uh, book with a lot of lessons learned. And, uh, and as everyone who knows Harold, uh, he, uh, he says it like he believes it. You may not all agree every moment, but you certainly understand where he comes from. Which is great. And so I'd like to uh, sort of talk about some aspects of the book. There are many different parts of it, and I'll try to jump around in different ways. Uh, but let me start, Harold, with asking sort of a, a big picture. Um, uh, how would you uh, compare the challenges uh, that you faced in uh, in 77 and for the next four years compared to the challenges that Secretary Panetta has been facing now? I would say that the principal difference is that then we had one big problem, uh, the competition with uh, the Soviet Union, uh, which we felt at the time posed an existential threat to the United States. Uh, certainly a thermonuclear war would have wiped out both countries and left the rest of the world in a very bad situation. Now, the chance of it happening was never very high, but the consequences of it happening were so high that even if the chances were low, uh, it was incumbent on us uh, to devote our attention uh, very strongly to that issue. Uh, that's not to say that at the time there weren't other problems. Uh, the Iranian revolution, for example, but that didn't pose an existential threat to the United States, and even though we fumbled it, uh, it uh, <coughs> did not uh, threaten the existence or ultimate well-being of the United States. Now I think we're in a world where there are lots of very substantial problems, none of which I would say pose an existential threat to the United States. And <clears throat> that, uh, that means that our attention, the attention of the national security uh, apparatus, uh, is divided uh, among all these different issues the rise of China, what's the relationship between U.S. and China going to be going forward? And you have there a, a classical rising power, establishment power uh, relationship. Uh, the turmoil in the Middle East and Persian Gulf, uh, which uh, threatens our economy, uh, and also uh, uh, could 
I hope not. I would, I would advise against it. Uh, involve us in a military way. Uh, so you have all you have all of these issues. <coughs> Finally, I think you have a difference in our economic situation. Uh, the period of the late 1970s was not a happy economic time, uh, as was reflected in the result of the 1980 election. But uh, compared with the present, uh, it was uh, very good times indeed. Uh, the uh, subsequent uh, expansion of uh, entitlement programs, the dysfunctional tax structure uh, have in the subsequent 30 years put us in a war- much worse economic situation. Uh, that affects our international relations and our standing, but at, at least as important, it affects uh, our well-being at home. So those are some of the differences. Uh, you, I think, touched on four or five of the points that I'm going to get try to open <laughs> up in a little more detail as we go forward. And let me start first with the discussion of, of uh, China. You were the first U.S. Secretary of uh, Defense to, uh, to visit China, in the new China. Um, I know that uh, your thoughts on U.S.-China relations have certainly changed over the period since you were Secretary, but can you talk about that evolution and, uh, and what you really see on the horizon? Well, in, in ni- the difference in China between 1980 and now uh, is uh, uh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, a steady uh, three-plus decades of near 10% annual growth in GDP uh, has made China a, a different country in some ways. In other ways, not. Uh, but uh, when, when I visited China in 1980, uh, there were two aspects uh, of the relationship that preoccupied me. and formed the basis of my visit. The first was the clear recognition that uh, with normalization between the U.S. and the PRC, uh, the balance between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the Cold War had changed. The Chinese at that time, I think, were seriously worried that the Soviets uh, might take military action against them. Uh, And in fact, earlier during the 1970s, the early 1970s, the Soviets had actually made a, a, uh, a representation toward the United States which essentially said, why don't we get together and knock off the Chinese nuclear capability? I remember a meeting uh, in the cabinet room when President Nixon uh, raised that subject. Uh, I had been uh, in <clears throat> a member of the U.S. delegation to uh, the nuclear <clears throat> uh, to the strategic arms limitation talks, and some of the Soviets there had raised that possibility with some of us, that is to say, uh, joining to, to uh, denuclearize the Chinese uh, nuclear program. Uh, and the same thing, of course, had happened uh, in official channels, the State Department. Uh, so that was, that was a very, that was, that was the background, uh, that was part of the background of Chinese-Russian uh, bad relations. Uh, <clears throat> so in nineteen in nineteen eighty, when I visited China, uh, that had developed. Uh, we had normalized relations with China, and the Chinese remained worried about Soviet uh, intentions. 
we had extensive talks. I had extensive talks. Uh, I and my uh, colleagues who accompanied me uh, with Chinese senior officials, included led, of course, at that time by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, they showed us their military capabilities, which at that time were really quite primitive. I remember freezing outside. This was in, in January of 1980. Uh, while they put on a display of their equipment and troops. And they had troops on motorcycles. Uh, so they were not very advanced militarily. Uh, I visited a, a, uh, an aircraft engine f factory, and they were quite primitive. Uh, we talked about the world situation. We looked at it in a very similar way. Uh, that was then. Thirty-odd years later, China is the rising power. Uh, in real terms, uh, probably uh, not a full competitor militarily with the United States, but clearly aspiring to comparable capability. Uh, how do we deal with that? Well, the history of rising versus status quo powers is not very encouraging. Uh, and the Chinese clearly are pressing. They're pressing for dominance politically in their own ge geographical area at the same time as economically, uh, they reach out throughout the whole world uh, for resources, for markets. Uh, can we avoid competition? No. Uh, can we avoid confrontation? Possibly, depending on how wise we are and also on how wise they are. They're throwing their weight around. We're resisting. Uh, I think it's possible uh, to avoid uh, conflict, uh, but it won't come easily. It won't be easy to do. Uh, just taking that a little step further, yes. if, if we uh, get to a point as this competition uh, moves forward and we see more of a military, uh, we're seeing a military confrontation and them building forces and building systems that potentially can exclude us from that part of their their sphere of influence. Um, we obviously have some commitments with parts of that world. Uh, we have statements on uh, uh, the fact that both oceans are, are ponds to play in, and uh, they have different views. The, nu the, the weapons that they're building are clearly geared at, our, at some of uh, our carrier task forces, et cetera. Um, do you feel that as we move forward, let's say, 10 to 15 years, that uh, there will be solutions that, uh, that can emerge between us, or there will be a backing down of the United States, or, or a change in the way we think about that part of the world? Well, let's, uh, first, the first condition is that we have to keep our get our economy in sufficient shape so that uh, uh, the underlying capability uh, to finance our military uh, is sufficient. Uh, I think we can do that. Whether we will, we'll, we'll see. But assuming that, uh, then I think that we can hold up our end in the military competition. Uh, remember, they have one used aircraft carrier. Uh, <clears throat> which they're only using for training. It's not operational. Uh, we have 11. Maybe we should have 10, but in any event, we'll have 10 times as many as they for quite a while. Uh, they are intelligent in their military planning and are using uh, strategies that are aimed at our vulnerabilities. We depend a lot on satellite communications. <clears throat> we depend on our aircraft carriers. 
uh, and uh, for the foreseeable future, I think w- the U.S. military capability will dominate the Pacific. Now, how close to the East Asian coast we can dominate, that's uncertain. Uh, it's going to... The Chinese ability to, to uh, control the situation... Uh, is going to gradually extend out from the Asian coast by a couple of hundred miles. Whether it becomes 500 miles, that we'll have to see. Uh, it does depend on the details of what we do. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that I have advocated for a long time the development of a new long-range bomber is that our forward bases are clearly going to come under increasing threat from Chinese capability. Uh, I think we have counters to that, but inevitably in a military competition, you go through a measure, counter-measure, counter-counter-measure ladder, essentially. Uh, And uh, your political behavior depends to a significant degree on how each side evaluates that balance. the hope, and I think we have a fairly good chance of uh, achieving that, is that both sides recognize that in the end, uh, conflict is not going to help either, either side. Uh, but there are always passions on both sides that push in the opposite and much more dangerous direction. We could spend all the whole time on China, but there's a lot more in this book that I want to at least expose, and uh, so let's leave that for a moment. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit, and you've already mentioned it, this issue of the coupling between the U.S. economy and our national security, which it takes, which you really develop in a great way in the book, and I really uh, think it's worth reading. There's lots of different parts about it. But I'd like you to talk about that because you really make some passionate arguments in the whole area of how how we have to get the economy straight if we're going to be serious about uh, taking on our world commitments? Well, it's a a truism, I think, that uh, our capability to operate in the the world, our national security, uh, not only depends on our economy, it depends on our cohesion, the cohesion of our society, uh, but especially it depends on the on the economy, and uh, the economy's not in is is in bad shape. Uh, I have my own, uh, I hope, somewhat informed, but certainly not expert, views uh, on how to deal with that. And a lot of it came out in some of the discussions yesterday. Uh, we have a short-term problem, and we have a long-term problem. The short-term problem actually demands stimulus. Uh, unfortunately, in my view, not enough stimulus was applied at the beginning, <clears throat> back in uh, 2009. Uh, <clears throat> had we done some infrastructure funding then, we would actually have some of the infrastructure and the jobs now. Uh, it's a little late to do that now, but there are other kinds of, of, of useful expenditures uh, that could be made. Uh, in the medium to long run, we have to do the opposite. And the transition, although easy to imagine, is not easy to detail and still harder to carry out. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's what the political leadership now is concentrating on. They're concentrating how to avoid falling off the cliff. That's, I understand that, but, <laughs> but it doesn't take care of the problem. Uh, I had a, uh, in the book, I have a number of long-term suggestions, uh, including uh, the uh, creation of a uh, an innovation corporation uh, that 
would be relatively free from political influence in deciding what demonstration projects for new technologies uh, <coughs> in the energy area, in the transportation area, and so forth uh, should be pursued. Uh, but that doesn't deal with our current economic problem. That's a longer range, a longer range issue. There's no doubt in my mind that some combination of entitlement reform and higher taxation, leaving open the question of whether how much of it is marginal rates, how much of it is <coughs> uh, reduction of of uh, <coughs> of uh, deductions, uh, takes place. The difficulty is that although you could probably get most people to agree with that, what they mean is uh, reducing other people's entitlements and raising other people's taxes. Uh, right. And I think in the end, and this foreshadows maybe the next session, the leadership session, uh, the leaders are, uh, you have to find leaders who will inflict the necessary pain, uh, be straight about it, and accept that as a result they'll be voted out of office. Uh, Right. That takes real leadership, and I don't see much of it, I must say. Uh, well, I've posed more problems than given solutions, yeah. right. Right. but uh, I've, I've suggested some solutions for other people. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Harold, Michael Mazar, the uh, professor at the National War College, yes. argues uh, that the economic forces are truly undercutting our U.S. strategic posture and that they're, they are reaching a critical mass and that as a result of that, we should seriously as a nation readjust our priorities to do only the things that we can do well or we're going to develop a hollow force uh, that will be exploited by our adversaries. Um, the, uh, he goes on and argues very strongly that uh, the economic realities are very much like uh, the bankrupting of uh, the English military doctrine in the, uh, the 1890s to uh, 1910 period. Uh, first, uh, do you agree with that? And um, uh, do you think that we should be changing our overall priorities? Well, I, yeah, I know Michael Mazar. He's a bright star, young star, and uh, I think what you've said, quoting him, makes a, a fair amount of sense. Uh, one thing I believe is, uh, and again, I think there'd probably be general agreement on the overall posture, but there'd be some uh, dissent on particular exceptions that it does not make sense to engage in large land force interventions on the Eurasian continent. Uh, we've had two. Neither of them is coming out, well, neither has come out very well. Uh, avoided complete disaster, perhaps, but spent a couple of trillion dollars uh, to not very good effect. <clears throat> So, what do we do? Well, I think we are an offshore balancer, essentially. Uh, that means largely naval and air, for and air power. Uh, certainly we need substantial special forces capabilities to be able to take care of small things. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and we, I, I would say that, and I say in the book, that we should plan not to insert ground forces of more than two or three divisions for more than a few months. Now, again, it's easy to say uh, because when you get in, it's hard to get out. It's like the Roach Motel. You <laughs> check in, but you can't check out. Uh, and... and uh, so just having uh, that plan doesn't assure that you won't get into trouble uh, even when you start following the plan. Uh, 
it is pretty clear that Asia, East Asia, uh, will be the site of the center of the U.S.-China competition, uh, whatever its nature. Uh, Europe is not particularly a military theater. Uh, and uh, although we don't have many forces there, we probably can reduce some of them. Uh, there's a difference between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. The Eastern Europeans still have some concerns about the Russians, although I, I think the Russians uh, probably are smart enough uh, not to use, not to start a military uh, adventure even in the lost provinces of the Baltics. Uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, we do need to reassure uh, those countries that are close to Russia uh, by having occasional joint exercises. And I think that would work, <clears throat> and we could probably deal with Europe, <clears throat> European security issues uh, with rotational, uh, with, with uh, rotational forces. Uh, the Middle East and Persian Gulf, which uh, is the tinderbox uh, of the world, uh, poses a, a more difficult problem, it seems to me. U.S.-China is a long-term problem, but over the next decade, uh, what can happen in South Asia, Pakistan, which is probably the most dangerous country in the world, uh, the Middle East which is heating up, has heated up already this week, uh, is, is, is something that can be a big problem for us, is a big problem for us. Uh, I don't have any magic solution to those. I mean, again, we heard yesterday about how important it is to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Uh, there, the difficulty, in my view, is we all know what needs to be done, uh, but the people to whom or with whom it has to be done aren't willing to do it. Uh, uh, and so, although uh, it's easy for us to fault President Obama for not getting out there and solving the problem, <clears throat> and perhaps what he should do is say, okay, here's the solution, which we all know, and I'm going to impose it. Okay, what happens then? And so he's not stupid to uh, push it away for a while. Uh, what's the lesson in terms of what U.S. military posture should be? Well, I say it in the book, I think, in general terms, a light hand when it comes to interventions. Uh, <clears throat> concentrate on naval and air power. Have enough ground forces to be able to operate uh, a few divisions for a few months. Uh, and perhaps uh, be limited uh, in our expectations of being able to do more than that. Uh, Senator Richard Russell, who was one of the wisest people I ever knew in terms of national security, he had his blind spot in race relations, and that meant he could never be president and properly met it, uh, went a little far when he once said, you know, the more we're able to do, the more we'll be tempted to go ahead and do things and get involved. That's not a reason for limiting, <clears throat> over-limiting our military capabilities, but it's one thing to think about when you're structuring your forces. Uh, don't don't have forces that tempt you to use them when you shouldn't. Right. 
in the book, you make a, a point of, of touching on on uh, real versus imagined threats to our country, and uh, the fact that each time we do something, there's billions of dollars associated with doing it, let alone the fact that we, uh, if we go after something imagined, it, uh, it hurts us in the long term. Can you think of uh, some of those imagined uh, threats that we actually uh, prosecuted and, uh, uh, over your time period? Well, I, in the book, I talk about... Uh, Well, one I remember from the early 1960s. The missile gap had already been uh, exploded and shown not to exist. Uh, But there arose uh, a belief that the Soviets were installing a very heavy ballistic missile defense. Uh, there were some radars that were found on the Baltic coast, and uh, I guess it was called the Lapaya system. Uh, and uh, some of the intelligence community is, uh, claimed this was the beginning of a 10,000 interceptor Soviet ballistic missile defense program. Uh, and that the worry about a possible Soviet anti-ballistic missile program had uh, induced me to push what we called a penetration aids program that was going that would be able to uh, counter a ballistic missile defense program. But one, but a ballistic missile defense program that had 10,000 interceptors would have been a tough thing to overcome. Well, it turned out that this system uh, was a air defense system. It had no ballistic missile capability at all. Soviets subsequently did put a ballistic missile defense system in around Moscow, a very limited one, which is still there, so far as I can tell. Uh, But it never approached anything like the concern uh, that some had uh, uh, expressed early on. So that was, that's that's one example. Well, there are a lot more in the book. It's kind of fun. You get get to read them, but they're great. just want to, for a moment, t- turn to the uh, Defense Department uh, as an organization, because you have a lot to say about your view of it. Uh, it's sort of viewed, I think, by everyone that the Defense Department, in terms of of the operations of a large enterprise, is actually a pretty good organization compared to some of the others in the in the uh, in the government. But everything can be better, and you have lots of ideas in your book about things that can make it better. And I'd like to uh, at least, uh, some of these are probably already the headlines that are going to be put out about this book. Uh, For example, streamlining by uh, your being able to get rid of the the secretaries of the services. And maybe uh, we can eliminate, we can eliminate, (laughs) we can eliminate the DNI. We don't need two layers of intelligence. That's another one that I'm sure uh, there'll be a subset of the world will think uh, will want to argue differently about. Um, could you could you kind of talk about that because I'm sure there are even some in the room that may may have a different. Well, I'm looking at that. two. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> why, why don't you just talk about it? Because you have you have a logic in the book which is worth uh, talking well, about. Well, uh, extra layers don't make things easier. Uh, I think that that uh, uh, the s- secretaries of the military departments are an artifact of a time when there was no secretary of defense. Uh, they serve a, sometimes serve a useful purpose, uh, but uh, they're an extra layer, and taking them out makes sense 
to me. The same thing is true, pardon me, Dennis, uh, of, the, of, the, of the DNI, uh, which was tacked on to the 9-11 report with one week's worth of consideration after they had looked at 9-11 for, for a year. Uh, each of these extra layers carries with it a whole bunch of deputies or undersecretaries, deputy DNIs, and their assistants and their assistants. Uh, the same thing existed in General Motors uh, before it went bust. And for the same reason, it needs to be thinned out very substantially. Uh, is it a big item in terms of money? Probably not, uh, but it sets a bad example. And <clears throat> and it actually slows things down. It makes things less efficient and less effective. Uh, that you know, th that's not the only thing that needs that I would suggest changing. Uh, I think that the procurement system is in many ways much worse, and certainly much more substantial in terms of cost. Right. And there, what I suggest in the book, I couldn't do it. It's not easy. That's why I wasn't able to do it. Uh, to get rid of the idea that somehow by having a procedure that is spelled out and uh, in, in procurement uh, to make it completely impervious to judgment, uh, uh, and thus uh, avoid political problems is the way to do it. In, f in the end, it doesn't avoid political problems because what happens is uh, there's this chart that says how the points that add up uh, that determine who gets the contract. The loser goes to court, essentially. And, uh, and in the end, in the worst case, some federal judge decides who gets the contract. Right. Uh, uh, it used to be better. Now, that's a refrain that is always heard from people my age. <laughs> but, but, but in fact, it was better when judgment was involved. I go a little bit further and say uh, one way to avoid overruns is to say here to the potential contractors, here's how much money we're going to spend on the program. No matter what else, this is how much money we're going to spend on it. You... Uh, come up with ideas and trade-offs. And different contractors can make different trade-offs. We'll have knowledgeable people, and there still are a few knowledgeable people in the Defense Department, decide which of these is better. We'll have some operators among the deciders, but they're not going to be free to, to use uh, wild blue yonder thoughts about what can be done. Uh, <clears throat> and we'll pick somebody, uh, and you go ahead and do what you said. And if in the course of what you're doing, uh, you find additional trade-offs are possible, fine, but don't, you're not going to get more than this much money. And if that means that we have to cut performance by 10% in one way or another, that's what we'll do. Now, that's not an ideal way to do things, but it's a great deal better than the way we do it now. We could have a whole discussion on this. Well, you know more about right. this from the other end. But there I wouldn't be any time for a Q&A from the audience, so I'm not going to continue that discussion, but uh, it's, it's a very good one. I would like to, just before, think about your questions, because we're going to open it up for Q&A. I do want to just mention one. In the, in the book, you talk about the importance of killing programs that no longer seem to make sense. And you have two, and you talk about the difficulties because of all the political structure around it. 
Uh, and you talk about two, namely Bambi and the and the V twenty two, one that was killed and one that wasn't. And uh, and I wonder if you just want to sure. give a little okay. bit of color on that. Ba well, ba I, when I came in as DDR in nineteen sixty one, you know, fifty one years ago, uh, <coughs> Bambi was uh, a ballistic missile intercept from orbit, which showed up again in the Reagan administration. Right. Uh, with Edward. <laughs> with Edward Teller. Uh, and uh, we killed it. Uh, but the fact that it showed up again is, uh, is evidence. The worst ideas never die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, you know, it was just, it, it was ridiculous. Uh, okay, the other one? What, the v, the v oh, V-22, which, the which V-22. was killed and was resurrected yeah, as uh, Congress did. One of his last good acts, uh, uh, Dick Cheney tried to kill the, v, the V-22, which is the vertical takeoff uh, rotating uh, engine uh, <coughs> uh, aircraft. Uh, and uh, look, the Marines want to be able to go further, faster, understandable and helicopters are a mess uh, you know they're not easy to fly they get into all kinds of problems turns out the v-22 which is a much more advanced uh, and uh, complicated in a different way because you have to rotate the engine essentially uh, <clears throat> so that it, it the propeller spins this way lifts you up uh, uh, turns out to cost about Sixty billion dollars is the program cost. Sixty billion dollars, which would have, as Don Rice would say, would have paid for a uh, hundred B twos. Uh, it was also, and, and it was pushed through because the Marines uh, seldom ask for something special for themselves, and. They have a certain charisma that helped get them. And the Congress overrode Dick Cheney, yep. uh, and it overrode subsequent people who tried to rein in the program. One of the arguments for it, interestingly enough, was its spin-off capabilities. It was going to be a, a big civilian user uh, use. You wouldn't have to drive out to the airport. The airport would be right in the middle of the city. Well, I guess somebody is trying to adapt it now, about <laughs> 40 years after. Uh, good luck, uh, because an airport runway is not the main part of the airport. Uh, it <clears throat> all the other stuff that goes with it, unless you're talking about a heliport like in the East River in New York, uh, is what takes up the space. Uh, and the cost and operational capabilities are proven not to be worth 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 doing well questionable in a military sense and ridiculous in a civilian sense All right let me open it up for for questions yes oh that one <laughs> thanks um, the topic of loose nukes has not really come up much in this conference the last couple of days, and um, but at one time people talked about it a lot. Uh, I'm just curious about your assessment of the risk of nuclear weapons, nuclear materials getting in the hands of either global criminal elements or terrorist elements. Yeah, well, you know there have been there has been leakage of radioactive materials, uh, and probably some small leakage of uh, fissionable materials, not enough to make, not nearly enough to make a bomb, you know, takes tens of kilograms, depending on which material you're talking about. Uh, and uh, the ability to construct a bomb, I think, is probably beyond that of terrorist organizations. Uh, <coughs> So what I really worry about is nuclear weapons being falling into the hands of of uh, non-state actors, as we call them. Uh, 
it's not going to happen in any of the major nuclear, uh, in any of the first five nuclear powers, U.S., U.K., France, U, uh, Russia, China, uh, worry more from Pakistan. Uh, at the moment, so far as I can tell, they have pretty good control. If the country breaks up, or if <clears throat> extremist organizations really gain control of some of the military, that could be a serious matter. Uh, the other possibility that one worries about is that the North Koreans, in in their economic extremists, uh, sell some. They've sold a lot of other stuff. They haven't, I mean, including missiles. They haven't got to that yet. Uh, I would say that for that reason, the possibility uh, is of leakage from a dysfunctional country, from a, from a country that, that uh, falls apart. <clears throat> or, in the case of Iran, should it get nuclear weapons, uh, passes it to friends, suggests that it's important that we do something we haven't really done, and that is uh, know enough about the chemical and isotopic composition of the various uh, stockpiles in the existing country, especially North Korea, uh, Pakistan, and if it gets nuclear weapons, Iran, so that if a bomb goes off, you're able to analyze the debris and say where it can, came from and hold responsible the, stock, the country from whose stockpile it came. Now, that's been talked about and applauded as an idea, but the work hasn't been done to, to do it. If you're going to deter people from trying to covertly uh, and indirectly, through a cutout, uh, produce a nuclear weapons explosion, you better be able to identify where it came from. Yes. Right here. Um, with respect to your comments about China and its potential threats to um, the U.S., I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Japan. Um, that's a country, it's the third largest economy in the world, but it's in, been in massive recession um, for the last 30 years. And given their demographics, which are um, more adverse than in fact ours, um, there, are, there is talk among economists that it could be the next Greece. And given um, your comments about the importance of the economy and defense, I was wondering, um, in a scenario where Japan's economy deteriorates dramatically, what you think that would pose uh, as a defense issue for the U.S.? Thank you. Well, we rely on Japan as an ally in East Asia, and Japan relies on us uh, enormously as a, a, a shield, essentially. Uh, uh, Japan is the third largest economy in the world uh, and has commensurate weight uh, in, the, in the world economy. Uh, I'm not quite as pessimistic about it as the commentators that you quote. Uh, and I think that Japan essentially is, has been, its economy has essentially been flat for a, for a decade. Uh, 30 years. All right, it's been, no, it hasn't been flat for 30 years, but it, they, they, they stopped growing. That's certainly true. Uh, per capita, uh, they're not worse off, they're not a lot worse off. They're a declining, they are a declining econ, they're a declining population. population. They're a declining population, which is also true of a lot of countries in Europe. Uh, that's not helpful. But Japan continues in its uh, budgets uh, to 
spend about 1% of its GDP on its military. And increasingly, its military has been willing to reach out further. So they've been holding up their end on defense. Uh, you, you, the question you, you ask is, if Japan goes down the tubes economically, what's the effect on the uh, strategic military posture in East Asia? And the answer is, it's not good. It's bad. It's, uh, uh, I, well, it depends on how bad the economic catastrophe yeah. is. I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, I don't believe Japan is going the way of Greece. If it did, then I think the effect would be quite bad, not only in terms of the military balance, but the political balance in East Asia would obviously be uh, much more much more a a adverse. To U.S. interests. I mean, I, I, that's clearly true. Uh, <clears throat> at the moment, uh, Japan uh, provides a significant uh, assistance to the U.S. in military terms. And if it went the way of Greece, uh, that would have a bad effect on our position in East Asia, no question. Another question? Yes. <laughs> Let's see, uh, Harold, I'm not going to. <laughs> A long justification of the, uh, the DNI, but I, I am curious to note that you, in the Defense Department, you recommend eliminating intermediate layers. In the intelligence uh, reorganization, you recommend eliminating the top layer. And, uh, and I, <laughs> and I, th I think that, uh, I mean, my experience was that in some fashion, the intelligence... Uh, world needs to be integrated in the same way that Goldwater Nichols and the <laughs> 1947 uh, National Security Act integrated the armed forces, and th the objective is the same in both cases. Uh, a good point, to which I would say that um, I, I would say that the commission that I chaired on intelligence organization <clears throat> in 1994-1995 recommended that the DCI, which was the other hat of the right. director of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, be given the same kinds of authorities that are now in the DNI. Right. In other words... Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I would have said uh, that the extra layer was unnecessary because all that authority could have put it, been put into the layer that existed before. I think now, now yeah. in fact, uh, the DCI, was the director, director of Central Intelligence, which is the other hat, was never able to fully... Uh, uh, to, to fully exercise the duties that the DNI in principle now has. Uh, but uh, I would have thought it would be possible. And in fact, it's not clear to me that the DNI is able fully to exercise those authorities now, and you may have found the same thing, uh, partly because you now have two layers where there was only one before. One inadequate one, now you have two uh, which don't always work together very well. Well, a big part of the problem was that the, that the director of central intelligence duties tended to crowd out the director of central intelligence duties, and the, the DCI director of the CIA found himself spending long hours uh, planning tactical covert operations, which the secretary of defense mercifully has not uh, has not been able to so well it could have been done it could yeah. have been done by having the yeah. dci spend his spend his time as dci right. and have a deputy doing the operational activities yeah that's true except a long string of people that you and i admire was not able to do, to do that uh, yeah well that system didn't work very well right. this system works worse in my but view. the large the larger <laughs> <laughs> the larger question that i that I think is true is that um, is that this business of um, 
you know, spending time on trying to improve the way the government works rather than making policy is, I think, uh, an increasingly neglected uh, part of government in my time. The, the, only, the only big organizational things in the Department of Defense that have been successful in my time have been Goldwater Nichols and the Base Realignment and Closure mm-hmm. Commission. Everything else has been has been uh, life chair uh, re- rearrangement. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I do think that groups like this, with a large number of analysts, retired uh, government people, retired in- industry people, the one thing that we can perhaps contribute is to uh, keep pushing these uh, ideas of, uh, of working on the, the how, not just the what, of, uh, of government, and, and really building the intellectual climate so that no matter what administration comes in with whatever policy ideas they find, and they all find them so attractive in the first, first couple of years, and then they usually understand about year seven <coughs> or year eight that, my God, we ought to work on the plumbing uh, before we leave, this, uh, we, we leave this place. But we make more of those, um, more, more of those uh, ready to, to implement. I, I worked on the project on national security f- reform with a number of people in this room and, and trying to get at the fundamental weaknesses of how we of, of how we push everything up to the White House and, and don't aren't able to delegate joint integrated uh, duties and and found that um, uh, it got no traction from uh, this this right. new administration even though many of us who had worked on it uh, were, were members of the administration and, and I I just do commend this business of concentrating on the how to because the the inefficiency of our national security sector it's not the ten to twenty percent it's in the it's in the 40 to 50 uh, percent. And if we could uh, make improvements along that uh, line in organization and authorities and processes like procurement and so on, I, I think we could make a contribution no matter what uh, large policies came out of, uh, came out of uh, whatever new administration comes along. So I certainly uh, commend that part of the effort and think we ought to be – those who spend some time in the organization ought to be continuing it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that, that uh, you know, the – operations are so much more attractive and produce results, good or bad, so much more quickly than dealing with the organization, that they are a great temptation. Uh, <clears throat> and that's, partic- that's especially so in the executive branch, which is why I think that some of the more sensible organizational changes, not all by any means, have come out of the Congress. I mean, for example, Goldwater-Nichols was opposed by the then Secretary of Defense and the de- then Joint Chiefs of Staff. Right, right, right. Uh, and uh, Congress, sometimes at least, uh, is better at, op- at, at organizational issues, except with respect to itself, than, <laughs> right. than, than, than the executive right. branch. Uh, and it's terrible at operational things. We have one last t- question. Tom Carlogas. Mr. Secretary, in 1978, you were instrumental in, in, uh, in one of the fathers of increasing NATO uh, funding, what have you. Uh, yeah, we had the Red Menace, 14 <laughs> countries or so today. They're 26, 27. Uh, Spain's going broke. Italy's going broke. Greece is broke. The U.S. is sequestering. Has uh, NATO outlived its usefulness? Uh, it's a good question, Tom. I think... Uh, Look, Europe is peaceful. I mean, and in that sense, uh, part of the original purpose of NATO uh, has, <coughs> if not disappeared, certainly declined. Uh, NATO has now operated out of area uh, in several cases and has provided kind of political cover for the United States, some military uh, assistance and uh, help, but I think at least as much political cover. And to the degree that that can continue, uh, I think it's well worth keeping. Uh, The countries involved, the the non-U.S. countries involved, uh, are becoming more and more leery, as well as more and more uh, uh, in a a bad uh, financial situation, able to do less. But I think that political cover 
remains important. The more ambitious hopes for it, that it could somehow deal with North Africa or the Middle East, I think that's, that turns out to be a dream and not a reality. So I don't think it's outlived its usefulness, but it has certainly changed uh, what it's good at, what it, what it can contribute. And I would continue <clears throat> to encourage it to keep contributing. Uh, we're in a very different situation now than we were in 1977, 78, mm-hmm. when getting them to increase their military expenditures and re- increasing our reinforcement capabilities in an attempt to continue to deter the Soviet Union from uh, conventional war as well as nuclear war, that's a former era, and uh, we sh- there's nothing like that now, and we should not continue to <clears throat> dream back of those glorious, dangerous days. Yeah. Well, as uh, I look at the clock, realize that uh, our hour is up. Uh, it's been fun to do this, Harold. It's always great to see you, and as part of this whole group, uh, let me recommend the book. I know you've seen it. You've got one. Uh, I think you'll enjoy uh, seeing all the dimensions, reading all the dimensions of it. Uh, and I also want to personally, on, on behalf of everyone here, thank you for uh, 50 years of dedication to the security of this country. You've made an enormous difference both in the government and outside. And thanks for going through all the trouble of putting the lessons learned down. They're really good. Thank you very much. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.